Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. And I want you to just pause here, and I want you to remember going back to high school. I want you to remember high school, and for some of you, just a few weeks ago. For others of you, it was um, a long time ago. A lot long time ago for some of you. But, but I want you to remember, I want you to remember carrying that lunch tray. Do you remember this? Carrying the lunch tray into the cafeteria. And as you enter the cafeteria, you survey all across the room, the landscape. You could see everyone who was there. And where are you going to sit? The descriptions of the kinds of people sitting in the room have changed over the years, but the basic types came into popular consciousness in the 1985 film, the classic movie, The Breakfast Club. You've seen The Breakfast Club? It's this amazing John Hughes classic. You've never seen it, you need to watch it. But because John Hughes, who is a brilliant filmmaker, he actually explained to us all who was sitting at each table at any high school cafeteria in America. At one table, there were the goth kids. The other table, there might be the popular kids, maybe the often rich kids. At another table, there there were the jocks and the athletes, also known as the jerks. Did did I say that out loud? Sorry. At another table, there would be the academics or the nerds. Quick aside, there's nothing wrong with being a nerd. Most of you in the room will work for one soon. They're often the ones who take over the world with great ideas and accomplish incredible things. And Finally, there are the rebels. The rebels. However, Breakfast Club showed us if we take the time to get to know the rebels, they have a compelling, if not complicated, story. Actually, every character in the film has a compelling backstory. And the point of the Breakfast Club film is they get trapped in detention together and have to get to know each other, not just the stereotypes, but the complicated human beings behind the stereotypes. And the big idea is if we get away from our usual table and start to get to know the people at other tables, they're far more interesting than we could have imagined. We begin to empathize with them. We begin to care about them. 
we see a bigger picture. But sadly, most of us never do this. Most of us pick the table we'll be at in high school and honestly, we often say at those tables, uh, sit at those tables and stay at those tables for the rest of our lives. But Jesus showed us a different way. Today we're going to look at a story where Jesus sat not at a table, but somewhere even more public, at a water well, and had a conversation with someone he was not even supposed to be talking to. Why? Because she was a Samaritan, because she was a woman, and because she was someone who'd been through multiple divorces. Her life was broken, but he took time to sit with her and talk with her. And that conversation changed her life. And not only her life, but the lives of the entire town where she was from. And so we're going to read that story today at this table. And I, I think, um, you know, some of you saw this table sitting over to the side and you're like, what is that? And you saw the guys moving it. It's like, what could go wrong? <laughs> but I thought I'd kind of show you my, one of my hidden talents. No, just kidding. <laughs> Some of you are like totally thinking I was doing that. No. <laughs> this story that we're going to read, it centers around water. And the thing about water in Jesus' day was it was really significant, but not easy to find. Not easy to get to. And so let's read it in John chapter 4, verse 5. Jesus arrived at the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph long ago. Wearied by his long journey, he sat on the edge of Jacob's well. He sent his disciples into the village to buy food, for it was already afternoon. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink of water. Surprised, she said, Why would a Jewish man ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water? Jesus replied, If you only knew who I am and the gift that God wants to give you, you'd ask me for a drink, and I would give to you living water. The woman replied, But sir, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is very deep. So where do you find this living water? <laughs> do you really think that you are greater than our ancestor Jacob who dug this well and drank from it himself along with his children and livestock? Jesus answered, if you drink from Jacob's well, you'll be thirsty again and again. But if anyone drinks the living water I give them, they will never thirst again and will be forever satisfied. For when you drink the water I give you, it becomes a gushing fountain of the Holy Spirit, springing up and flooding you with endless life. The woman replied, let me 
drink that, that water so I'll never be thirsty again and won't have to come back here to draw water. Jesus said, go get your husband and bring him back here. But I'm not married, the woman answered. That's true, Jesus said. For you've been married five times and now you're living with the man who's not your husband. You have told the truth. The woman said, you must be a prophet. Let's pray. Father, let the word come alive to us, we pray. As we open up the scriptures and as we read this story, would you speak to us? Give us clarity. Give us revelation. Let us hear what you're saying to each of us individually and give us the grace to obey. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, in both the last two weeks' messages, we've been focused on an idea focused on some verses in the book of Luke. Because Luke, the writer, he writes this amazing gospel account. And twice in this book, he writes this phrase, the Son of Man came. The Son of Man came. And one passage is in Luke 7.34. Luke 7.34 says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, this idea of eating and drinking kind of goes over our head. Jesus is accused of it as a glutton and a drunkard because he, he ate with people all the time. And there was this experience over a meal that we don't really understand today because we're so busy or we eat too much fast food. There was no such thing as fast food in the Bible, only slow food. But we love our fast food. We love driving through. I get a little something-something. It's great in the moment. It's bad later. There's something that we don't get about Jesus and how he interacts with people eating and drinking. And he did it so much, he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard by the religious people. Because you weren't supposed to eat with those people. And so there's, a, there's an idea that Jesus is espousing. And then Luke records this same phrase, the Son of Man came, again in Luke 19, 10. <clears throat> and Andrew uh, highlighted this last week. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. So you got Jesus eating and drinking and seeking and saving. One was his mission. The other was his method. Seeking and saving was his mission. And the other was Jesus' methodology. It was how he shared the kingdom of God with people. In our culture, there, it was, it, it, our culture has a lot of um, similarities, actually, to this culture that Jesus was in. They had a culture where many were hostile to him. Hostile and kept an arm's length. How did Jesus present the kingdom of God over and over again? One meal at a time. One meal at a time. And I think we're rediscovering this idea. We've talked about it the last two weeks. If you need to catch up on any of the messages, you can go to the uh, podcast at onechapel.com and, and catch up. 
See, because in a post-Christian culture that we live in, how do we invite people to follow Jesus? How do we actually share the, the ideas of the kingdom? In a culture where there is this hostility, where we, where we sense that this discomfort, it's not PC to think what you really think. It's not PC to say what you really want to say. So you got to keep quiet. You kind of feel anxious around certain people. You weird, it seems weird or it's, a, it's this awkward tension that people have when they're they're, they're sharing their lives together. And so in this series, we're looking at the different times that Jesus sat down at a table and then just started sharing what the kingdom of God was like. And interestingly enough, he does this over and over and over again with what his culture would have called untouchables. You're not supposed to touch them. You're not supposed to engage with them. And here in John chapter four, Jesus sits down at a well with an unnamed Samaritan woman. Again, this was a big deal. It was not done. This was a countercultural move. Why so countercultural? Because Samaritans were outcasts to the Jews. The Samaritans were a mixed race of people, part Jew, part Gentile, and they grew, actually, this, this group of people grew out of the Assyrian captivity of the 10 northern tribes in 727 BC. The, the nation of Israel breaks into two tribes parts, 10 tribes in one, two in the other, and the northern tribes start to intermarry, and, and they, be, they intermarry with the Assyrians, and they become half-breeds, according to the Jews. They even disobeyed the Torah. They came up with kind of their own Torah, because they didn't have the whole thing, and so there was this process by which they became hated by the Jews, or tainted, is how they would have seen them. So for the devout Jew, the Samaritans represented everything they were against. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews because they had been rejected by them. So it went both ways. And the animosity was so intense that Pharisees often prayed that no Samaritan would ever be resurrected. Yeah, they played, prayed against resurrection for Samaritans. When the Pharisees wanted to insult Jesus, they called him a Samaritan. You see, Jews wouldn't even set foot in Samaria. Even if the closest distance from A to B <clears throat> was through Samaria, they'd go all the way around. They'd go all the way around. John 4.4 4 says, now he had to go through Samaria. That's what, that's what the verse says. The scripture says Jesus had to go. And if you look at closely at that word had to, everybody say had to. Had to has this idea, it carries the idea of being driven forward by a divine appointment, meaning it wasn't geographically necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria, Samaria, but God was leading him through Samaria, even though no Jew would go that way. And not only that, but a rabbi wouldn't even speak to a woman in public. It was wrong. She's not just a Samaritan, she's a woman twice an outcast in the Jewish thought. But Jesus asks her for a drink of water. He sits down and verse 9 says she was surprised because this isn't, this isn't right. Why was she surprised? A Jewish man, a rabbi, <clears throat> uh, was speaking to her, a Samaritan woman. And he was also asking to share this vessel 
that she had. See, it was more than just give me a drink. It was, can I use the vessel you're using? And I want to drink after you. Any germaphobes in the room? (laughs) Don't like to drink after other people? Scientifically, it's clear there's no difference, right? There's measurable, minimal, measurable difference between the germs. It doesn't matter. But still, you don't want to drink after these people. My throat's really hurting this morning. You can kind of hear it in my voice. And I'm doing everything I can to keep going, so I'm just going to drink a little of this water. (laughs) I need a little bit more than that, so I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So... So Jesus asks to use the same vessel, which was really forbidden. And remember this, five ex-husbands, the woman was unclean in every way in the Jewish mindset. And in other words, Jesus was developing a bad reputation by hanging out with this woman. She was tabloid material. And so, so... John 4, 6 says, wearied by his long journey, he sat on the edge of Jacob's well and he sent his disciples into the village to buy food for it was already afternoon. Now I want you to think about this well as um, like your local coffee shop, Starbucks or maybe someplace cooler like radio or uh, summer moon. And, uh, <clears throat> or you could think of it like a watering hole, you know, hard day of work uh, afterwards and people gather and talk about their day. Well, um, in reality, most of the, <clears throat> what would happen is the women would come and get the water early in the morning. And this was typically their role. And so getting water was hard work. Getting water was this heavy bucket that went down into this really deep well. It was a lot of work. And so they came early before the sun was high in the sky and they would laugh a bit. They'd probably catch up on their village gossip. And, and, but Jesus arrives in the afternoon and so the woman from the village had already, they'd already come and gone. And, but here's this Samaritan woman with a questionable past and he speaks to her. But just contextually, I want you to understand what Jesus is doing here because he's asking for something in the heat of the day um, and he would not have escaped the condemnation of the onlookers because this town was full of all kinds of really disreputable people. The name of this capital of Samaria, which is what it was. It was a capital of Samaria. It was Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph long ago is what verse 5 says. But it's the capital of Samaria and it gets its name, which means drunken. The, the, the name actually means drunken from the drunk inhabitants that ran rampant in the city. And so get this picture. Jesus sits as a drink of water in a local coffee shop with the worst woman and the worst town in the worst country. It's practically scandalous. It's this encounter with this woman. It may seem a little counterintuitive, right? Like, like Jesus doesn't actually ask her for a drink. He tells her, give me a drink. Whoa, boy. Hang on a second. She's like really surprised. She's shocked at this, this forwardness. But you have to understand, Jesus started a conversation. He was starting a conversation that would make her curious. He's starting a conversation that would, that would cause her 
to, to like perk up and try to figure out what was going on because Jesus was always ready to offer living water. You and I live in a culture where we don't ever have to be in line at a coffee shop or in line at a grocery store or anywhere where we're by ourselves but a lot of other people are around. We don't have to talk to anyone. You know why? Because we have this. (laughs) This is the perfect device to send the message to everyone around us. Hey, we're busy. Hey, we got people to talk to. Listen, you know exactly what you're doing. You're in line. You don't want to catch eye contact with anybody around you. So you look at your phone and you check your social media. You just checked it 10 minutes ago. Stop it. (laughs) You're like acting like you're doing work. Now, some of you are like, no, I really do work. Really? That much? No. You're avoiding talking to people. You know how I know this? I do it. <laughs> There's something in our culture where I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want to break, I don't know if I want to pierce the barrier. It's going around, on around me. Like, like people are, you know, at a coffee shop, if you're sitting in a coffee shop, every, what is it with everybody in the coffee shop is like, they got headphones on. You're like, how annoying is it for you to say, hey, could you give me a, glass of water (laughs) so annoying this is essentially what Jesus does he pierces the silence he does something that's not normal and so I think Jesus has a plan he has a purpose here He's, he's ready to give something and I fear that we need to always be ready and we're not always ready. We're not always prepared, and worse yet, we're not always intentional about this living water. Because Jesus is doing something here that has to do with hospitality. This woman was not welcomed at the well. Thus, she's there in the afternoon when it's isolated. She was not welcomed with Jesus' kind but Jesus is doing something about that. And this is what leads us to godly hospitality. You see, because the word hospitality is really really important. The word hospitality is this Greek word, and the Greek construction of it is philoxenia. Philoxenia is a compound word, and philo, P-H-I-L-O, means love. This is where we get the word Philadelphia for the city of brotherly love, right? And then there's this, this other part of this word, xenos, X-E-N-O-S, which means stranger. Stranger, foreigner, immigrant, refugee, outsider, guest. So the word xenophobia actually is the opposite of hospitality. It's the opposite. Xenophobia is the fear of the stranger, the fear of the foreigner, the fear of the outsider. Hospitality is literally love for the stranger. Now, here's the crazy thing. We're told to practice hospitality all through the the New Testament. Check it out. New Testament, Romans 12, 13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. You know why 
Paul says, you got to practice hospitality because you stink at it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a thing he wants to get. If you peel back the, the, this idea of practicing hospitality, it would be doing something with extreme effort and with a definite purpose and a goal. It could be translated, be eager to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. This sounds awesome, but a bunch of you guys in the room are like, what, what, how do you love each other deeply? Like, like it's a little too sweet for me, Pastor Ross. 1 Peter 4, 9 says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. <laughs> I love how Peter adds on the grumbling part. Right? Because you'll be hospitable, but you'll gripe all the way. (laughs) I got to do this. This is really, I I can't believe this. Just a little encouragement to all the introverts in the room. You, You have people over and you say, stay as late as you want, but you really mean leave in 15 minutes. (laughs) Look, there's a thing. We all have different temperaments, but we're all called to practice something. This hospitality, this love for people. First Peter 4.10, you get to the verse 10, it says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. In your home, in your apartment, your cooking skills, your time, your money, faithful stewards, God's grace being offered through you in various ways. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. That's a trip. Check this out. <laughs> in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, we won't go there, but there's, it's a, they're each long list that Paul gives for leaders in the church. So everybody who's going to lead in an area of the church, the practice of hospitality is a job requirement in the list. That's a character quality list and hospitality is there. You have to practice hospitality if you're going to lead in the church. Now, I've heard of pastors being removed from churches, from their positions for heresy, for an affair, uh, for mismanaging finances, but I've never heard of a pastor being removed for his lack of hospitality. But it's right there in the same list. We de-emphasize it in the name of all kinds of things. We segment. We segment in the church just like People are segmenting out in our culture. We have to see what Jesus is doing here. We are commanded to practice hospitality. It's just because it's so ordinary, but it has so much potential for something to happen. I want to tell you a story about a lady named Rosaria Butterfield that illustrates this idea. And there's uh, been times that I've quoted from her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. That's the name of her book. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And here's her story. She was a far-left, radical lesbian feminist. She was also a brilliant tenured professor at Syracuse University with a specialty in postmodern theory in literature. 
Okay, so, so she's, uh, she's writing this, she's finishing her degree, but she was writing a book on how Bible-believing Christians are basically the worst. These people are the worst. How we are a threat and a menace to society and, and how we're dangerous. And so as part of her research, of course, she had to actually meet a few Bible-believing Christians. Which is awesome. And so as a result, she wrote an editorial in the New York paper. And she was, it was a scathing indictment of a Christian men's conference during that time. Because it was everything she was against. And so she's writing about this. But a local pastor saw her article and wrote her a response. And it was gracious and thoughtful and came with an invitation to dinner. And so she thought she had to do some research anyway, so she might as well go. And in her book, she writes about driving. She's driving there and she's thinking to herself, am I crazy? This is nuts. I'm driving to the enemy's house. She goes ahead and she goes in and she writes about walking in the front door and experiencing hospitality and love as expressed as a welcome over a meal. And she writes about how it started to change her perspective, her life. She came back for dinner again and again and again and again. She finally came to one of their Bible studies. She, uh, she then came to a small group and then she finally came to church. It took a long, long, long time to get there. Long story short, <laughs> after many years, she, she's now actually married to a Reformed Presbyterian pastor, and she and her husband are foster parents to all these kids, and they run a Christian ministry out of their house. And she, she's written several books. I, I, I highly recommend her and her experience. And, and, and now her basic life message is this. <laughs> and this may shock you. But her basic life message is this. The LGBTQ community does a way better job at hospitality than most churches do. Listen, everybody. This is a practice we have to embody. We have to embrace it. We have to understand it. We have to recapture this idea, this heritage over thousands of years of tradition of Christians having meals with people everywhere. Hospitality, as we're defining it here, is ground zero for the Christian faith and what Jesus has done. So she writes, Rosaria Butterfield writes, about radically ordinary hospitality. And she says this, she says, those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. Simon Kerry Holtz kind of, 
identifies this same idea. The Australian chef turned theologian, he says it this way, it's good to be reminded that the table is a very ordinary place, a place so routine and everyday that it's easily overlooked as a place of ministry. At its base, hospitality is about providing a space for God's spirit to move. Setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation, providing a context in which people feel loved and welcomed and where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. Hospitality is very ordinary business, but in its ordinariness, it is, is its real worth. Whatever it looks like, your own table is a sacred place. See, it turns out the gospel pairs really well with a bottle of wine. If you're into that kind of thing. A fresh loaf of sourdough bread, a bowl of chips and queso and guac, some tacos and enchiladas. This is where the gospel takes shape. Some of you are writing me off right now. You're listening to me. You're like, it's okay, hospitality. That's not me. But let's, let's make sure we're on the same page. Because what you're thinking in your head is you want, you think you have to become Joanna Gaines. And you need to make sure your house is shiplapped correctly. <laughs> You're thinking uh, that you have to become Martha Stewart to do this thing. You imagine that your house has to look a certain way if you have to buy the coolest IKEA furniture. It's cheap enough you can keep replacing it, that's true. But you want it, you say, like, I have to have my backyard strung with lights and I have to create this awesome experience. That's not what we're saying. You don't have to have the right dishes or the right platters. You don't have to be able to cook these huge, delicious, gourmet meals. Because think about it. Think about what Jesus did. Think about him here in this moment. He didn't even have a glass of water to offer her. Right? He had nothing. He was asking her. So isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that Jesus asked, started the conversation with his need versus him having it all together? Thank you. <laughs> we don't think of people, we don't think of Jesus, right? We don't think of Jesus as needing something. You, did you read the scripture? It says he was tired. He was weary from the journey. It was hot. He sat down. He needed a drink. He needed a drink of water. He had nothing to draw with. See, you and I, we think we have to have all this stuff together when in reality the Jesus way is just be you. Whatever's going on with you, just be hospitable because Jesus had a plan for this hospitality that he was about to offer her, but he began with not being afraid to say, I'm tired, I'm really thirsty. Instead of waiting for the po- perfect moment, he speaks to her, and he, and he does this, this thing where he's, he starts this conversation where he's going to ultimately offer her living water, but he doesn't start there comes later. I was re- doing a little research and um, there's this, inter- there's this uh, article that's been floating around the internet for maybe a couple years. It's from this uh, website called scarymommy.com. <laughs> it is an awesome website. <clears throat> and I want to read you, it's by Christine Organ and she, 
she writes this thing, she's, and the title of the article is, Bring Back the Potluck. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use her words, okay? First service, I kind of cheated, but I'm going to read her words, okay? Is that okay? Are, are we all okay with that? Okay, good. <laughs> Somebody's like, what? Here's the title of the article, Bring Back the Potluck and the Half-Assed Dinner Party. <laughs> what? Sorry, my wife's watching online today because she's sick at home. I'm sorry, babe, I did it. Once upon a time, she says, I loved to entertain. Big parties, casual gatherings, intimate dinner parties. I loved it all. And when my husband and I were first married, we hosted Sunday night dinners with friends as, as a way to cure the end of weekend doldrums. After our first son was born, we often invited friends over for long dinners on Saturday night so that we could still hang out with our childless friends without paying for a babysitter. After putting our son down for an early bedtime, we would rejoin our friends around our tiny kitchen table where we would drink too much, laugh too loud, and generally have a kick-ass time. But two kids and 10 years later, those casual and frequent dinner parties are a thing of the past. That core group of friends had dispersed. And while we've made new friends in new places, everyone is busy and coordinating a dinner party, especially one that includes kids, became damn near impossible. (laughs) With all the conflicting, I told you I was going to read it as it is. With all the conflicting schedules, co- commitments, and obligations. So somewhere along the way, the effort involved in entertaining and hosting dinner parties became too much. We could barely keep up with the basic tasks of survival. <laughs> and the thought of adding extra chores to my list of to-dos and extra grocery shopping, extra cleaning, extra meal preparation seemed like too much work. So we stopped hosting casual dinner parties. Instead, we meet friends at restaurants and bars. We have Nate nights alone. And we, sa- we save entertaining for special occasions like birthdays and holidays. Lately, though, I've been thinking a lot about those dinner parties of days gone by, and I miss them. I miss my friends. I miss the way conversation unfolds when people sit around a table. About a year ago, I heard about a Friday night meatballs, and a couple of months ago, I read an article called Five Rules for Hosting a Crappy Dinner Party and and seeing your friends more often. And I thought, why am I making this so hard? Maybe there's a way to gather together with friends without the hassles. Maybe there's a way to socialize without spending my kids' college fund on babysitters. Maybe there's a way to have a kick-ass time at a half-ass dinner party. And then she says, she says, and then it hit me. No one was making it difficult to have friends over other than me. I was the one creating this unattainable standard of perfection. I had confused entertaining with hospitality and made these gatherings of friends into something that they didn't need to be. They were supposed to be about conversation, laughter, and togetherness. It didn't matter if I served grilled cheese or filet mignon, whether I had matching wine glasses or red solo cups, whether my house was spotless or littered with baseball cards and dust bunnies. The only thing that matters is whether we welcome people under our home and enjoy each other's company. The people are what matter, not the ambiance or the menu. I don't, I don't know where this lady's faith is, but she gets it. She gets the idea of hospitality. And I think it's the idea that we have to get because we keep thinking about hospitality as entertainment. It's not entertainment. Comparing, I want to just compare entertainment and hospitality. Entertaining is something that causes exclusion. Hospitality is about inclusion. Entertainment is like, I got to invite this person, got to invite that person, got to oh, make the list, and I really, I got to have the right list, the in crowd. But hospitality is about including anyone. 
and everyone who wants to come. It's an open table. Entertainment is about performance. You show off your home and your skills. Hospitality is about service. You show people tangible love. Entertainment has a clear host and a guest. Hospitality blurs those lines. The best host, you barely notice they're doing it. Jesus was often both. Entertainment is sporadic. Hospitality is a way of life. It can happen anywhere. At a coffee shop, in your home, anywhere. It's regular and it's rhythmic. Entertainment is an act of reciprocity. I have you over, then you have me over. No. Hospitality is an act of generosity. You give and expect nothing back. Entertainment shows stratification of society. You you move up and down the ladder as you get the right people at the party. No, hospitality is about justice for the poor. Here's how Jesus said it in Luke 14, 12 through 14. He says, when Jesus... Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is Jesus like reframing He's he's creating a radical shift in the culture he was in because think of this. Humanity hasn't changed much in several hundred years. That that, uh, culture was segmented. That culture was judgmental. That culture was politically uh, disconnected. That culture had all these dynamics that appear to inflict harm on us today. And he, he changed their thinking. Instead of aiming hospitality up to incur favor with those ahead of you, he aimed it down as a way to serve for those who are in need. And that's what changes the world. In fact, some historians, historians, historians think it was through the practice of hospitality that the gospel spread at such a rapid pace. Think about it. From the time of Jesus' resurrection where there were around 120 people, right? Three centuries later, Christianity is the dominant new normal. Over half the Roman Empire in some way is practicing Christianity. Three centuries later, there's something happening. Paganism was overcome. Caesar himself, in a way, was overcome and even toppling the Roman Empire. How did it happen? No internet, no sound systems, no church buildings, no religious freedom, no celebrity pastors with preachers and sneakers, no social media. How did it happen? The gospel spread from house to house, from home to home, one table to the next. And like this woman at the well that Jesus wasn't supposed to speak with, from one drink to the next through radically ordinary hospitality. Let me ask you a final question. Who is your Samaritan woman? Who do you want to avoid? Who are you not interested in having at your table? Blacks, Latinos, uh, Asians, whites, feminists, liberals, Democrats, Republicans, the poor, the rich, the successful, the uneducated. 
the gay neighbor, the immoral worker, the moral, immoral co-worker, the, the judgmental, the agnostic that you know? Who do you avoid because of race, gender, or moral standing? Jesus is driving home a point. And the Samaritan's woman response is incredible. Look what she says in John 4, 25 through 30. She says, the woman said, this is all so confusing, but I do know the anointed one is coming, the true Messiah. She wants to talk theology. And when he comes, he will tell us everything we need to know. And Jesus said to her, you don't have to wait any longer. The anointed one is here to speaking with you. I am the one you're looking for. And at that moment, the disciples returned and ruined everything. Uh, they were stunned to see Jesus speaking with a Samaritan woman, yet none of them dared ask him why, what, what they were discussing. At once the woman dropped her jar, ran off to her village and told everyone, come and meet a man at the well who told me everything I've ever done. He could be the anointed one we've been waiting for. And hearing this, the people came streaming out of the village to see Jesus. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to bow your head. And I just want the, the Holy Spirit to speak to you and, and just allow you to maybe evaluate your, your life, your habits, your patterns. Listen, I, as I was preparing for this message, this, this is a hard message for a pastor. I've gotten stuck from time to time. And I was convicted here of my lack of hospitality. And I, I want us to be a church that practices it regularly as a lifestyle, not as a specialized thing for those who have the gift, but as a way of worshiping Jesus, a way of following Jesus, a way of, a way of loving people, a way of reaching across the aisle, a way of reaching someone who needs to know who Jesus is. So Father, we just come to you now. And we as a community, we, we repent of our isolation, our individuality, our fixation with ourselves and our friends. We pray that you teach us the meaning of the table. Teach us the meaning of a, a cup of water. Teach us the meaning of speaking to a person that Jesus should never have been speaking to. Teach us the meaning of these things and help us. Forgive us. Forgive us for our hesitation. Forgive us for our apprehension. Forgive us, Lord, for our wrong way of thinking. And we ask you to heal our hearts. Change us. Make us into the people you want us to be. Help us to be people who can transform the world around us by by a simple act of love, kindness. Teach us how to do this, Lord, so that we can follow you in a greater measure, so we can see your kingdom come into our city and into our region. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com welcome.
You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.30. See you next time.